0: We are going to continue our series titled Hebrews Greater Than Today. Hopefully you're seeing a great story being told in this letter. It's been written with a series of layers to help us get this idea of who Jesus is.
1: If you're not sure how to summarise that, let me give you some pointers in chapter 1. The Son is presented as
0: the exact representation of God's being and glory. He's not merely under the command of angels, but He is their commander-in-chief, and He is the divine one. He's presented as God in the flesh. The Son is the message of God. From chapter 2 onwards, the Son, the message, the divine one, takes on full humanity with the very human designation of being a little lower than the angels for the time he was here on earth. Full humanity would be fleshed out over the chapters, and it would be explained to include every form of temptation and every struggle that comes with being flesh and blood, including the very real physical death that he endured. It's necessary to the Christian faith to understand that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time, all that time. Then in his humanity, Jesus the Son is more than just another revered Jew. In chapter 3, he's greater than Moses. And the predominantly Jewish audience of the first time this letter was written would need to be okay with that because the work of Christ would complete what Moses prescribed. And that's a really big deal. In recent weeks, we've learned that he is greater than the Levitical priesthood, but a priest nonetheless. With the example of Melchizedek showing us the order of things in that regard. So in short, a fully divine and fully human person who was greater than Moses and greater than Melchizedek, became our perfect, permanent king of righteousness and peace and our once for all time high priest. That's the idea coming out in, in, in a nutshell at this time. Now, the first audience of this letter still needs to be shown more of this idea to be fully convinced. And that's what the next two weeks of this series is going to explore. We're going to start with the end of chapter 7 now, and we're going to read just um, the the first few verses of chapter 8 to to open up proceedings as we go into our our passage today. So, we're going to look at um, chapter 7, verse 23. That's where we'll start today. Uh, I needed to start somewhere. That's where I'll start today. So, uh, it's on screen if you need it. Otherwise, let's read. Now, there have been many of those priests... ...since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him... ...because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens... Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Over to chapter 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was, was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Hold your thumb in there. We'll come back to it.
1: Unless you have a device. Keep your thumb off. There's been a whole lot of writing here about Priesthood. Depending
0: on what our experience of church and religion has been up to in this point, we'll have varying responses to that word. Some of those might be positive. If we look at the news, we know that there's a whole lot of negative thought to that word as well. In this building, we are in a Protestant church. And we might even see the word as redundant or completely irrelevant to our faith expression.
1: After all, there is no backwards collar on my neck. And if we're not watchful at this point, we might start glazing over as we examine this
0: idea with any sort of real depth. It's like, yeah, priest, 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 yeah, whatever, just keep reading through.
1: I want to challenge you employ you today. Don't do that here. If we don't understand properly the word priest from a biblical perspective, we actually won't properly understand the work of Jesus. And
0: if we take Peter at his word, neither will we fully grasp our own ministry expression as well. This has the opportunity today and for the next few weeks when we understand the work of Christ in this way to revolutionise your own devotional walk and to really speak into how you relate to Jesus on a day-to-day basis. The imagery that is present in Hebrews in this time, if you haven't got a grasp on it already, will change things.
1: So let's not just gloss over going, Eh, priest, I know it. No, we don't. Let's get into it today. The Old Testament priesthood
0: had a really important role in Israel's expression as the people of God. And hopefully we are somewhat familiar with this because of our series on Leviticus. But I want to recap it briefly. They had a standard of living set before them that was higher than that of everyday humanity. You might remember in Leviticus, there was a holiness spectrum that we talked about. And the priesthood had to operate at a pretty high level in that, whereas the rest of God's people sat in a constant state of being pretty much unclean in the camp and had to become clean in order to come to worship. But the priest had to sit at a higher plane all the time. We understand that they were set apart from their people to operate in a significant religious space called a sanctuary. In the wilderness, this was a tent they called the tabernacle. When Israel took up permanent residency in its promised land, this became a permanent structure in Jerusalem that we call the temple. And they both had an allocated inner sanctuary space to operate from. Through detailed, prescribed ritual and sacrifice, the priest would operate as intermediaries between God and men. And in doing so, they mediated a covenant between the two parties. In the Old Testament, this was the one that God himself set up generations before with Abraham. Genesis 15 can tell you about that. If you study the idea of covenant and, and understand how that was played out in that chapter. we realise by studying that, that God took upon Himself even the gruesome consequences of both parties breaking the covenant. If you understand covenant, how, the, how he was told to, that Abraham was told to prepare it and, and have animals cut in half, and there was a big trench of blood in between those two things, and normally a covenant would be two people would walk through that trench of blood, getting themselves absolutely drenched in blood up to the knee sometimes with the understanding that if I break covenant, this blood will be upon me. And if you read the Genesis 15 account, you see that God passes through that covenant trench
1: and then consumes the whole thing so Abraham can't. God took upon himself all the consequences of that covenant knowing that he would never be the
0: one to do so. He would never break it. Our God is a faithful God at all times.
1: Representing God, the priest would continually teach the people of what God's laws were. And representing
0: the people, they would bring offerings to the Lord on their behalf. Offerings that would either be atoned for the times the people broke those laws, or for simply giving thanks that they live under those laws.
1: And through that mediation process, covenant was upheld at both ends.
0: And when both parties held up their ends, and let's face it, it was only going to be man who broke it. Things were amazingly good. In that covenant, there was favor, there was protection, there was production. And most amazingly, most importantly, there was relationship with their ever present their ever-active and their vocal God.
1: Through covenant, God decreed that Israel would be His people. The important take from all that is that being
0: in covenant relationship with God always involves the presence and the specific ministry of a high priest. The predominantly Jewish audience of this letter knew that to be true. They knew what a priesthood did and they knew somehow that they needed a priest to be in right standing with God. And they may be faltering a bit with Christianity right now because they were having a hard time reconciling how this all worked. And our author here is anxious for his congregation to see Jesus the right way here so that they could go all in
1: with Jesus rather than go back to their previous Jewish expression. To do that, he needs to demonstrate a key trait about Jesus and his work.
0: That even for Christians, there is an inescapable need for a priest. The Jewish crowd had the vocabulary to understand it, but now they needed to believe that Jesus would operate fully in that
1: vital position in their faith. Not a human one, but Christ. That said, Jesus was human, so let me get that right too.
0: That's what's being written here. In chapter 7, we see that we need a qualified high priest. And in chapter 8, in the opening of chapter 8 here, we are assured that as Christians, we have that very person. We have one.
1: Jesus, with all the amazing traits we've learned about him in this letter so far, is all that we need
0: because he is, in fact, a high priest. Not from the family of Aaron, like Leviticus, but in the order of eternal things, of which Melchizedek provides us a type to understand. And Jesus
1: is the only priest we will ever need because he is resurrected and lives forever. And these few verses we've just read here today gives us some insight as to exactly
0: how Jesus qualifies to hold that office.
1: The writer says this, he is always on hand to intercede. That's what a priest had to do often, in a both up and down sort of way.
0: Jesus could do that because he identifies in two ways in this particular letter. In chapter one onwards, he is God's son. So we understand the God to man element of this. But in chapter two, he is described as our brother. He's not ashamed to call us family, brothers and sisters. Which means that Jesus is qualified to intercede man to God
1: as well. And through this method of intercession, we are saved. We read that he exceeds the human priestly standard of holiness.
0: All the traits speak for themselves about Jesus here. He's blameless in all things, completely set apart from sinners, even in his humanity. We've seen this established many times in this letter, tempted in all ways, but never sinning. And while a priest in Leviticus has to offer for himself before offering for the people, Jesus has no such requirement. So all that is offered in His ministry of intercession to the Father
1: is completely for our benefit alone. We learn that Jesus has a tabernacle and a sanctuary. That's a big thing to get our heads around there. We've come to be acquainted with a sanctuary the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And this setup up here
0: is actually based on a design that God put in place. It wasn't a case of Moses, form a committee and determine how your church is going to look like. It was, I am going to set a pattern for you. And I want you to build this.
1: Using the best materials you can find to try to get close. The verse quoted in Hebrews is actually Exodus 25, verse 40.
0: Build it according to the pattern that I said. It was a warning that was given to Moses. The writer of this letter would have been taught through Jewish tradition that this pattern was more than an oral instruction. Instead, it is probable that while on Mount Sinai, Moses was given a vision of what to build, in that he actually saw...
1: The heavenly sanctuary and then said see what i've got going on here
0: do something on earth that makes people refer to that
1: do something a very primitive version given what they had to work with that shows what god's sanctuary is like
0: and we know it's a primitive rendition because the words copy and shadow actually speak of a preliminary sketch of things. If you see the most amazing thing, but only hold a grey lead in your hand, that's kind of the idea. Moses saw the very best thing he could possibly
1: find. He sees God's presence, but the materials dictated that that's all he could produce of it. But in understanding this, there would be parallels with how things were done
0: in the earthly tabernacle that in some ways mirrored things happening in God's very presence. There's a reason the tabernacle and the later temple had a very palace-like way about it. And it wasn't for the priest's benefit to go, I'm the king of my castle here. It was for the people to understand that their God was their king, their sovereign. The sheer beauty of this concept is going to come out next week. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus passed into the heavens. And this actually refers more to his death than his ascension. And as a result of that passing, we have permission to approach God's holy throne. And here in chapter 8, we're told that the sanctuary in God's presence
1: contains Jesus. And he shares the throne in the most holy place. In that sanctuary, before and from God's very throne, Jesus mediates a new covenant. That new covenant is described in the next passage let's keep reading hopefully you can
0: get your thumb back in there we'll read from verse 6 of chapter 8 but in fact the ministry that jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, He has made the old one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Two major Old Testament passages are being featured throughout this letter at this point. The first one, of course, was Psalm 110. And that has told to anticipate a new priesthood. That includes the references to the order of Melchizedek and a, a prophetic image of how Jesus would, would, would occupy that role. We've already seen how Jesus meets that criteria. And according to this part of the letter, Jesus is the superior high priest because of all that. And Jeremiah 31 is quoted in what we just read now. And this anticipates a whole new order and covenant that this priest would mediate. We read earlier in chapter 7, and Peter talked about this last week, that a new priestly order means new rules. A new way of doing things which is far more intimate, and in the words of this letter, greater and superior than what was done before. We're reminded here that God found fault with the old covenant.
1: Not on his part, but on the people's part. This meant that somewhere along the way, he would need
0: to put all that right. Why? Because we learned in Genesis 15 that God took those consequences himself. His merciful act in front of Abraham dictated that he would need to set this covenant right.
1: And since he would put it all right, he
0: would then be able to initiate a new one. And Jeremiah 31 anticipates that, and Hebrews declares it enacted in Jesus. It features God's laws on the minds and the hearts of his people. In other words, this is a different sort of priestly delivery here. Instead of being taught, they'll simply know. And the outcome will be the same anyway. He will be their God and they will be his people. This is the same promise made to Israel, now made to those who receive the new covenant, i.e. us. And in that covenant arrangement, a different but distinctly priestly ministry occurs from God's throne and sanctuary. Because of this, a new intimate way of covenant relationship occurs. How? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And because mediation is occurring not in a physical temple, but in the very presence of God, in the original sanctuary,
1: that we can only roughly replicate, no matter how grand we make it,
0: Because that's going on in the presence of God, there is always the promise
1: of forgiveness and continual favour in Him. What a great new deal there is because of Jesus. The last verse is amazing
0: for us. But it was also really deeply challenging to its original readers.
1: If there's a new covenant, what happens to the old one? What happens to the Jerusalem pilgrimages and the sacrifices, assuming the temple is still standing, which I believe it would be at the time this was written? Our writer makes a brave call here for his readers to consider. He calls the old covenant obsolete and at best fading. The Old Covenant was a bit like this in the author's mind. Sometimes tears are shed in church. It had significant power when it was put into place. It was designed to work as long as it was needed because my, God made it. Over time, it lost its power. Not because God did it any different, but because the heart of man couldn't keep it up. Over time, it became a plaything, an item of abuse on many occasions and completely
0: ignored other times. God several times
1: said, what part about justice and mercy don't you understand? God's covenant
0: people got awfully complacent over the 1,500 years the Mosaic law was in place. And at the time of writing of
1: Hebrews, the law was losing its stick. From a simple Jewish standpoint,
0: it didn't take a scholar to see that this was the case in the first century. The law was getting flimsy.
1: But the writer here takes the Christian view beyond that. It's not merely flimsy, but obsolete. Does this mean the Ten Commandments are out the window? I believe not
0: because there's nothing in the New Testament or the teaching of Jesus that gives even the slightest hint or permission to see
1: God's holy moral code shift in any way. Jesus didn't die to give us permission to be immoral.
0: I fully believe we can expect the promised law that is written on our hearts and our minds to be every bit as holy and
1: moral as what has been written. God is consistent. What we can definitely
0: read is that the sacrificial system and the human order of Levitical priesthood
1: and all the ritual and the ceremony of all that is most certainly done away with. In context,
0: our author here is making a distinct call to cut that rather thick cord of sacrifice and ritual in their lives
1: and put all their salvation eggs in the Jesus basket. Our eloquent writer here also knows there's one more major element that needs
0: some theological reflection to make this point complete. The Jews had the understanding that without shedding blood, there's no forgiveness, and they were right. They needed to know just how Jesus does that and they need it to be pretty unambiguous and so do we. Sometimes we have a very much a throwaway line, Jesus died for my sins. How does that work? We need to understand that in a far greater way and fortunately from next week we'll have a good understanding of that from the
1: book of Hebrews. For now, I'm going to take a time to simply reflect on what we've explored today.
0: I've got some simple things I want to throw your way to start with. What words and descriptions stood out and resonated with you this morning? What elements of this are you you learning or exploring for the very first time today? What follow-up questions do you need to ask? How do you need to go beyond today and study what has been talked about today? House church leaders, be on hand for this one.
1: Use the. I've put a fair few questions into the, the Bible study app, into the, uh, the notes there. Is our learning today calling for a different attitude or action?
0: Does the understanding of Jesus' work as a priest change how you relate to Him? Does it give new imagery? For you to understand the work of Christ when you approach Him, when we say we can approach that when we sing songs like boldly I approach your throne, what do you have in your mind and heart?
1: Have you got a visual for that now? Have you got an understanding of that now? What is the Holy Spirit wanting to reveal or call us to today? Would you consider this statement? We all need a priest. How do you respond to that? How do you relate to Jesus as a priest in this light now? How will you continue to do that? We learn today about a new covenant and a new deal. Go back to Jeremiah 31 and study that in your own time. Are the elements outlined in the New Covenant taking root in your faith expression now? Or do some need development? Is there an ongoing
0: journey in our lives of having God's laws written in us? Is there growth in the way that we know the Lord as promised?
1: We're good at knowing about Him. Do we know Him? We're good at knowing what's written, but what's in our hearts? What's the Spirit saying? And the last thing I I really got captured by on Friday when I was pondering this further, Forgiveness comes with the phrase, I will remember their sins no more. You know what that means? There are two ways we often become aware of our sin. Through conviction and through condemnation. They sound similar, but they're much different. Conviction is the work of the Spirit. And it shows us what's not right. But it
0: also comes with a welcoming call to go back to God's sanctuary where the Mediator is waiting to show us to the throne once again.
1: And once we've been there, our sin will never be spoken of by God again. I will remember their sin no more. But if you've been around the block a bit, you know another voice comes to us anyway.
0: It's not of God. It's called condemnation. It pushes us away from the presence of God. It tells us we're never going to measure up. It tells us we're never going to get close to him. It tells us that no matter what you've done, even though you've been before God's throne, even though you've been told
1: to do so with confidence, there's no real getting back to that. That's not the deal of the New Covenant. If we take the New Covenant at its word and God declared it so it would be incredibly wise to then we need to know that that's not God's way of doing things. What have you been listening to? What have you been experiencing? We're
0: all going to fall short of God's glory. We are all going to sin.
1: But we have a constant mediator and we have constant access to the throne of grace. If you're
0: copying the condemnation card, that's not from God. You need to get past that voice and
1: go to the throne. Now that you know the difference, what changes this morning? Let's pause and pray.